This presentation is from UX Australia 2020, day one. Our next presenter joining us now is Steliana Saras. Um, did I pronounce that correctly? I hope I did. Um, but, uh, this next talk is going to look at the behavioral psychology. Hello. Hi, how's it going? Sorry, I, I couldn't hear how you pronounced it, but it's Stiliana. Stiliana, wonderful, yeah. thank you. Um, no worries. And uh, you're going to be talking about uh, the behavioral psychology behind um, software and, and applications. Yeah, very good. Can you see that all right? I can. I will hand Perfect. over to you. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Steve. And thanks, Vanita, for an excellent, excellent talk on a topic that's really important, um, especially during the pandemic. So I definitely felt a lot of feels hearing that um, and definitely a tough one to follow. Um, but thanks for having me here today. I just want to give a quick overview of what I want to talk about today. I want to start off with a quick introduction about myself, just to give a bit more talk context about how this talk transpired. Uh, we're going to move into a bit of the foundations of behaviorism, so covering things like the Skinner box, the theory of operant conditioning, and just changing our mindset in terms of viewing the world as a series of Skinner boxes. Uh, before we move into, I mean, the key point of the talk, which is when behavior becomes addiction. Uh, so covering things like intermittent schedules of reinforcement, examples of how these tricks are employed um, in applications that most of us use, <clears throat> excuse me, every day, uh, how habits are designed. Uh, and where do we go from here? So a bit of a moral appraisal uh, to end us off. So I had a bit of an unusual uh, entry into experience design. I kicked off thinking I was going to be an academic, uh, studying a double degree in uh, psychology and philosophy at the University of Melbourne. So from a psych perspective, I started by focusing in on behavioral psychology, but over the years moved into more of a neuroscience and eventually neuroethics focus. Um, on the other counterpart uh, of my studies, I studied philosophy kicking off with ethical theory before I moved into more of a epistemology and philosophy of science, which is a theory of knowledge. Uh, over the last five years, I was really, been really lucky to practice in the industry and, and kind of apply this knowledge to a multitude of projects. I've taken some key highlights um, to show here. So my, my experience leading the user research on the Virgin Australia mobile app redesign, if you remember that back in 2017 to 18, I also worked as the lead UXer on Vodafone Streamlab, which is a cancer research app, um, and AGL's virtual power plant service. Alas, enough about me. Let's move into some foundations of behaviorism. So behaviorists posit that thoughts and feelings are impossible to observe. They're subjective and consistent, hard to measure empirically, and frankly, a futile exercise um, to the behaviorist, given that our attitudes and behaviors are oftentimes incongruous. So what the behaviorist would say is that instead, we should focus um, on observing how an operant's environment shapes what it does. It's easier to measure empirically, and we can measure it at scale. And we can do this by looking at different market signals through behavioral economics. Back in 1930s, B.F. Skinner, uh, wanted to devise a theory to support the view that manipulating different variables in someone's environment will shape their behavior. Uh, so how did he test this hypothesis? Well, let's set the scene. These, we can take some inspiration from Mark's uh, rap that he caught. <laughs> um, the unexpected protagonist of our story today is a rodent. Uh, the stage 
uh, in which it all took place was is called the operant conditioning chamber or what's often famously coined uh, the Skinner box. And the props that Skinner used to, to manipulate the operant, so the rodent in this case, was his lever, which was originally neutral, um, the food dispenser, which is where he administered the reward, and the electric grid that was under the rodent, which is how he administered punishment. Uh, and through manipulating uh, the different types of rewards and punishment and schedules that he applied this to the, the rat, um, he observed how the rat's behavior uh, would change and alas, came up with his theory of operant conditioning. So fundamentally, the theory goes as follows. The certain behavior that an operant conducts, if the environment reinforces the behavior that increases the likelihood of the desired behavior being repeated again, if it's punished, however, that decreases the likelihood of the undesired behavior being repeated again. What he concluded was that, and what behaviorists would posit, is that if you understand the box, you can understand the behavior. And if you design the right box, you can control behavior. And this is where it gets interesting. Now, a little cognitive exercise that I, that I liked or a mental model that I like to put in in terms of understanding the individual is starting to view life amidst a series of various sized Skinner boxes. So we have to be cognizant of the fact that our as an individual, through our maturational development and, and our journey through life, we've had different layers to our conditioning and different types of environmental factors that have changed um, our behavior by reinforcing and punishing different behavior. So I guess the closest one to that is our immediate relation, relationships. This is things like, you know, the different parenting strategies that our parents employed, you know, by reinforcing and punishing different behaviors, but more so recently for us, the different types of partners we've had um, in our experience and the different behaviors that they've reinforced or punished in us. A layer that sits above that are the institutions that we've had um, engagement with, uh, the schools that we went to growing up, uh, but maybe more recently the workplace that we're in. Um, so certain types of cultures or workplace cultures reinforce or punish different behavior and therefore mold us um, in different ways. One layer above that are the macro systems that we live within. So that's economic, political, education, government, and religious systems that we're uh, reared within. Uh, so for an example, you know, somebody raised in the West that might have had more exposure to the capitalistic system might display more individualistic qualities versus somebody from a communist space that has more collectivist ideals. But the scary part is that technology couldn't care less about where you're from, <laughs> kind of who your immediate relation, relations are, it reinforces and punishes you regardless of whether you're from the East or West and has a, a Skinner box of completely new magnitude. So to put it into perspective, a Skinner box designed in England can influence behavior um, in the States. Sovereignty takes a completely new form. It's no longer defined by geography. It's a completely new avenue for political warfare. And we've seen this more recently in examples like Cambridge Analytica or way more recently, Microsoft's TikTok acquisition dilemmas, which are still under play as we speak. And with that comes us as designers changing our, our perspective on what we're designing. So every interface can be seen as this tremendously powerful Skinner box, which comes in all shapes and sizes. We carry them in our pockets, we wear them around our wrists, they're in our ear, and soon they're gonna be embedded within our cerebral cortex uh, to the point where we can't even see them. 
Um, and we see this through projects like Neuralink. So with that comes the cognizance that as designers of these interfaces, we do more than merely design user flows, look at end-to-end -end journeys, and just alleviate pain points. We design behaviors. So let's have a look at how we go from just teaching a behavior to cultivating an addiction in our users. So building onto our theory of operant conditioning, we saw before that there's reinforcement and punishment, but let's go one layer deeper as we build on our knowledge. There's two types um, of reinforcement in this theory. So we've got positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, and both are conducive to increasing the likelihood of a desired behavior being repeated again. Um, and the difference between positive and negative really just pertains to the fact that with positive reinforcement, you're adding a variable, whereas with negative reinforcement, you're removing an aversive stimulus uh, and both lead to reinforcing that behavior. Let's look at some examples. So a really easy one is our um, order confirmations. So if you receive an order confirmation email after going through a payment gateway, that positively reinforces your purchase behavior. Uh, over time, we've been trained to expect this kind of reinforcement and often feel distressed when we don't receive it following payment. Now, what I really like about this example is that it really shows how behaviors trained from one product can be generalized to others. So if with one company, you're trained to receive um, that confirmation notification and you receive it from the majority of companies, if, an, if a new um, engagement comes in and you don't receive that notification, you actually feel distressed because we start generalizing our expectations of that feedback loop to other products that we encounter. Um, another example of positive reinforcement and one that I particularly really like um, is the way that Facebook used text effects. Um, so typing congratulations on a friend's post actually results in your screen animating with confetti and balloons. Um, which um, I really, really like, despite the fact that Facebook have now discontinued this feature, so I couldn't do a live recording for you guys. Um, but when it was in action, this feature positively reinforced, reinforced sorry, this benevolent behavior in the users, this pro-social kind of congratulating others, which is a really powerful way to encourage that, that communal feeling through the application. Another example, um, Sorry, a new example of negative reinforcement. So refreshing our minds that negative is when you remove an aversive stimulus to reinforce behavior. Um, and a classic example of this are filters and any filter functionality. And we see this through applications like Snapchat, we kickstarted it all, um, and then other platforms that have adopted this kind of functionality like Snap, um, Instagram stories or Facetune, which let you edit. Um, and now what filters do is they reinforce you to continue engaging by way of removing the need to show your face during a vulnerable moment, for example, without makeup. Um, however, this immediate gratification has these long-term impacts and there's plenty of literature covering this and, and how much of an effect they've had on certain mental health issues such as body dysmorphia. A perhaps more benevolent use of negative reinforcement is Zoom's virtual background feature. Uh, and here's a wonderful picture of my um, design team at Tigerspike. Um, uh, and in terms of virtual backgrounds, so the, this feature assuages this disapprobation that some users might feel in showing their peers um, their home. This could range from merely hiding background mess all the way to masking living conditions. So by removing this aversive stimulus from the equation, 
zoom evens the playing field by reinforce, reinforcing users to turn their camera on and ultimately create a more engaging virtual meeting room uh, or classroom. Now, there's different ways that you can schedule uh, this reinforcement, and they are both conducive to different types of behavioral patterns. So uh, the first type of schedule of reinforcement is continuous, which is when the desired behavior is reinforced every single time that it occurs. It's most effective when you're teaching a new behavior and creates a really strong association between the user behavior and the response. However, too much dopamine, to bring in a, a little bit of a basic neuroscientific lens, too much of a dopaminergic hit actually has adverse effects. Um, and this is because we fall victim to this problem called hedonic adaptation, which is when, in simple terms, you get used to nice things to the point where they don't feel good anymore um, after you experience them. Consider the feeling that you get when you first buy a new car, you feel that dopaminergic hit at the beginning, but after a while, it doesn't give you that same um, feeling of euphoria as it did the first time that you bought it, because you get used to it. So with that, the more unpredictable the reward, the more addictive the system. This is because dopaminergic depletion actually increases a user's impulsivity for reward. This is where intermittent schedules of reinforcement come in, which is when the desired behavior is reinforced at an unpredictable frequency or time. It's most effective once the behavior has already been established. Um, and as you can see here, there's a different speed of behavior acquisition and, and this thing called behavior's resistance to extinction, which in our terms in UX design is like behavior retention. It's a different way of saying it um, as the theory goes. And as you can see, um, the ones that we're actually focused in in terms of addiction are the variable ratio and variable interval. So it's that intermittent schedules. And you can see there's different patterns of behavior acquisition and retention depending on what schedule that you use. So we'll go through a few examples. Uh, let's start with a variable ratio reinforcement schedule, which is when reinforcement is delivered after an unpredictable number of responses. You can never predict how many swipes it will take for you to get a match, so that when you do, it acts as this, this reinforcer uh, to keep you swiping. Uh, this behavioral design actually operates on the exact same principle as a poker slot machine, uh, which is quite, quite alarming, and that, that's why it's so effective. Another example uh, of a variable ratio is um, TikTok. You don't know how many times that you have to perform this slide up gesture before you will enjoy the TikTok video. Um, and something that I wanna get us all to think about is that you know, the content that you find abominable while you're going through your TikTok feed contributes just as much to your addiction to TikTok as the content you find appealing. This is because you can't predict when you'll enjoy the video, which acts as that intermittent schedule. So you keep chasing that that feeling of euphoria when you do find a video um, enjoyable and you do get that reward. As another type of schedule, we have the variable interval, which operates on time. So that's the difference between ratio and interval. And it's when reinforcement is delivered after unpredictable time intervals. Uh, as an example, after having uploaded a picture to social media, you don't know when you'll receive recognition in forms of likes or comments because certain amounts of time go by before you'll get that reward and you can't possibly predict that. So when you keep going in to check your socials um, and to see this reward, that reinforces you to keep going in and checking. Uh, it's the exact same principle that applies when you check your emails, um, when you periodically go in to check your emails or when you unlock your phone to see if there's a message, you know, that 
that need to just go in and unlock your phone to see if there's a message despite not having received um, any notification that alludes to that. So how, how are these design ha uh, habits designed? Sorry. Essentially to design a habit, and I'm using the word habit as this positive connotation of the word addiction because there's, there's two ways to look at it. Uh, but assuming that we're using this in a benevolent way, you wanna design for micro sessions. Uh, repetition is key to forming a habit uh, and the frequency of the user interaction is more conducive to developing a habit than the duration of the visit. So when you're measuring this in analytics, you're almost more uh, wanting to, to assess the frequency of user engagement versus the actual duration um, that your users have been in the application for. A really great example of this is Duolingo. Um, they break up the lessons in really small chunks to encourage that short but repetitive visits. Uh, so by design, users are more likely to persist in learning a new language. Um, and as you can tell, here's my laughable progress uh, at learning French. I'm still stuck on lesson three. Um, another thing you want to do is make sure you're removing any distractor stimuli. So a clear connection needs to be made between the behavior and the reward uh, for that, that association to be established. And what you want to be doing here is carefully control for any extraneous variables. So you want to avoid any pop-ups, larger advertisements in the areas of your app where you're trying to train a behavior. Um, now, this is where marketing and UX teams kind of butt heads and, and go head to head because you don't want to have any adverts competing with that behavior that, that you're trying to train and the habit that you're trying to form. Uh, so what these applications do in a very clever way, an example being Tinder that we see here, but also um, Instagram stories do this by embedding the actual advertisement in the same space that you're training the behavior uh, rather than having it compete with the, in, in the one spot. Lastly, combination is everything. It's not about a single feature and a single schedule of reinforcement. A mix in the feature set is key. And there's multiple ways of, of mixing that, that um, of blending reinforcement schedules um, and lots of literature covering that as well for future rating. Uh, but I, an example that I wanted to show here for, for simple comparison is the way that Spotify uh, blend these schedules. So we have the yearly top songs playlist, as you can see in my 2019, uh, where Spotify kind of curate and collate all your most played songs. So that's a continuous schedule because you're bound to enjoy them um, as you play through versus a more intermittent schedule that we have in the Discovery Weekly or the Release Radar playlist, which is where, um, again, there's that uncertainty whether you're going to enjoy every song uh, and that intermittent schedule of, of reinforcement working here. So where do we go from here? A lot, of, a lot of people ask me, you know, Stiliana, how do we apply this theory morally and do right by our users? At the end of the day, um, I like to think that all of us are trying to do the right thing. Um, and so, you know, how do we use this theory in the right way? Now, sadly, you know, there's no universally accepted answer for what demarcates right from wrong. There's three freestanding leading theories in philosophy that, you know, me and, and a, a lot of other people have studied ex extensively, like deontology, consequentialism, and virtue ethics, um, that all have three different ideas or three different ways of defining right from wrong. So if I was to say, you know, everybody, this is, you know, how to do the right thing, I would be pushing either one of these theories or another, because there's, there's more than just three. And I don't feel like that's the right way of going about it. But I think there needs to be that reshaping of our minds that, and being cognizant that we define right from wrong um, in a relative way 
to us and there isn't a universally accepted answer to how to do this morally. But a lot changes when you start viewing the interface that you're designing as an operant conditioning chamber. And with that, you should ask yourself, what behavior am I designing? Thank you very much, Juliana. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask one quick question that's been sent through from Ingrid before we let you go. Um, do you understand why Facebook removed those animations? If it positively reinforces emotion, it seems it would be in their best interest to keep them. That is a really, really great question. And frankly, when I was putting this deck together and I was constantly trying to find different ways to replicate it, and was kind of mind boggled that they discontinued it. Um, I don't have the answer for, for why. I'm, I definitely don't work for Facebook, um, but I do think it's a case of, you know, different product teams trialing and erroring different types of uh, functionality and perhaps they're pushing or working towards a different feature um, that would have similar um, behaviors. But yeah, I think it's just a classic example of trial and error. They would have had some reason for why they've discontinued it. Um, just like Instagram cut the, the likes, you know, they try different things to, to see to see how it works. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve.